One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week we are talking to Rachel Edwards about her new column in the Sunday Times and life as a black woman in the countryside. We meet journalist Raphael Rowe, who is wrongly convicted for murder and now spends his time investigating the world's toughest prisons. And Brenda Davis tells us an incredible story that features in her new book. First up, it's Rachel Edwards. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. I mean, who who did let the dogs out? Who let the producers in is the other question we've got to ask here. Uh, we are talking to author Rachel Edwards, who recently wrote a fantastic column for The Times all about why more black and Asian people should own dogs. Uh, as somebody who is a dog owner, I think everyone should own a dog. But Rachel, tell me, why do you think everyone should own a dog? <laughs> well, hello there, Harriet. Well, um, I, I, yes, I do think that people should. Although I wouldn't say the same thing about 20 years ago, because I used to be terrified of dogs. I was so <laughs> scared of dogs growing up. Um, now I'm a very happy dog owner to one Cassie, a gold retriever who's absolutely lovely, oh, I adore. Lovely. <laughs> but I never thought I would be, you know, and I think that um, culturally um, it wasn't something we did in our family. And also my, my cousins and, and friends and other people from, I'm half Jamaican, half Nigerian, and people from our, our cultural circle didn't really um, own dogs. So it, was very, it seemed very much an English thing that wasn't part of my world, really, when I was growing up. So um, I'm, I'm very delighted now to be a very happy dog owner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think um it is such a sort of traditionally english country thing isn't it to be a bit mm. crazy about our pets and particularly about dogs do you think it sort of changed how you relate to your community because one of the things that i noticed when i got a dog was that suddenly everybody smiled at me when i was yeah. out walking dog everyone smiled at you everyone wants to talk to you that is so true because I grew up, I, whilst I didn't have an urban upbringing, so I didn't grow up in London, I grew up in Hertfordshire, but I moved out to Oxfordshire from London, which is quite a big change. A very, we live in a very rural community now in, in a hamlet um, by the Thames. And actually, once I met my now husband, um, when we go out, you're right, it's a, pe- a way of people connecting. So often, actually, even now, I know people's dogs maybe more than I know the other, <laughs> the other people. <laughs> you know, so people say hello to Cassie and it's my dog before they say hello to me. And it's not, it's not personal, it's just that that's where people are. And I thought that, you used to think that's quite a 
is a mad English thing, but now I quite like it because it's actually that there's wonderful, unjudgmental creatures just saying hello to each other. And then you then chat to loners, and it's a really relaxed way of being and living in the countryside. So I'm very glad that I've got over my massive phobia and managed to embrace this side of country living. Because it's part of being out here, it really enhances it, yeah. Love that. The other column I wanted to talk to you about, because mm. it was, um, I mean, you write it and as you're reading it, you sort of go, this, this must be fiction because it's so dramatic. <laughs> and it wasn't, it was real life, is about racial profiling and when it happened to you. Can you tell us the story? Yes, I absolutely can. So you're right. So for a start, I have had some comments on about this and people saying to me did this really happen uh, and i had to flag this up straight away saying i'm an author so if i need to make up fiction i'm just kidding a bit <laughs> <laughs> it really is very much real so what happened to me was i when i left university i moved back to oxfordshire and i my, my degree was in french and english so I, so I gave some french tuition to supplement my income in a kind of low level publishing job and I was teaching a 13, 14-year-old boy, um, and I went to teach, giving him French tuition. And one day, I turned up a little bit early, so I was waiting in my car outside, and uh, I saw this kind of elderly uh, white gentleman kind of clock me a bit and just think, oh, I was sitting in my car reading these kind of verb books, and he sort of looked at me, and I thought, he looked like it, uh, he thought I was a bit suspicious. Mm. Um, I didn't really think too much of it, but then I went on into the house, gave this lesson, and in the half an hour, um, the elder brother of, of my, my tutee burst into the room and said, oh, the helicopter above the house, you know. And I was, I was so utterly shocked. And that bit's a bit of a blur, but then the next time I remember is a policeman burst into the living room and, and looked at me, and obviously two people were going around, and he just apologised, and he didn't explain, he just went up again. And I was so shocked, because what had happened, I was going to call the police because he thought I looked suspicious. Um, so, yes, that, that was my story. And then, then what happened was that... Um, you know, they they went away. They they told us after well, they kind of explained afterwards that there'd been a spate of burglars in the area. But my 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 abiding memory is the fact that I was just sitting there in my car, and the only thing about me was that I was an incongruous burglar black woman in my car in a very mm-hmm. like, English area, and that's why I did for the police. So that was um yeah, that was my tale really. I mean, and even them saying you know, there's been a spate of burglaries in the area. Well, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the presumption was that therefore the client somehow appeared suspicious. And really, and I, and I actually, in my column, I'm, I'm five or two and a half, not that I had to look physically stressing, <laughs> but I was reading a French textbook in a very unremarkable un- uh, black hatchback called Betsy, you know. It really wasn't, it really wasn't threatening. And um, the fact that, I mean, it's comical now. I mean, I, I could have, at the time, I think I was, I think I was, Cumulated in shock, but actually, yeah. my abiding memories of the lady whose who son, son I was teaching being incredibly kind and silently outraged and being on my side, and that that kindness really saved me. So people who kind of take your side in the, 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 on the you know when injustice occurs, I think that's really important. She was very kind to me, so that's what sticks me really. How does that make? What does that teach you, or did it teach you about uh, racial profiling here in the UK? Was it? Was it a sort of moment for you where you were like, oh, I, I knew this had to happen at some point and here it is? Or was it that, oh, my gosh, I can't actually believe this is happening? Well, I couldn't believe it, ha- it was happening. And even now, as good for you, I, I still can't believe it happened because <laughs> I think that I was raised to, you know, be polite, to toe the line mm. in a certain way. My father was a GP, my mother was a nurse. 
So both the machine have worked for NHS for well over 50 years. They were, they were law-abiding and people yeah. who believed in integration. So they came Windrush generation, you know, and they believed in mm-hmm. mix, you know, education and kids blending in and doing your best. So I didn't have lose this kind of edgy life where I was used to police, police interventions in my life. It was the first time I think anyone's ever even seen police even close up. I was so shocked. So it did shock me. And I, and I felt somehow that for the first time I realised that just my skin colour could um, lead me to find myself in certain situations that were beyond my control, regardless of education or intelligence or, or, or behaviour. And that was a shocking thing because that was something I couldn't have controlled myself. And um, and even now that resonates. It makes you feel like, okay, I don't want to happen to people who have, who have maybe... Um, I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone else because, I, as it was, I've, I've absorbed it, I've moved on, and I'm in a position where I can talk about it. But it happens to people, young uh, black people, all the time, and I, and, I, and I feel for it. You know, it makes me feel like how important it is that that, must, that should not happen. Yeah. There's been lots of chat recently about uh, how white publishing is and how difficult it is for black people, particularly black women, to even get published in the first place. And um, one of the things that um, I don't know if you saw going around, but was a spreadsheet where people filled in how much they were given as an advance and mm. uh, their kind of, you know, whether it was fiction, non-fiction, their ethnicity, their age, their gender, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, the thing that came across very clearly was that there was uh, both a gender and an ethnicity pay gap in terms of how mm-hmm. much authors were making. What's your experience of publishing been like? Well, um, I have to be very honest. I mean, it's slightly behind the curve, maybe, that there is this, mm. um, you know, what, what am I being paid type um, thing going around on social media, mm. which I think is a good thing, by the way. I think it's you know, bring it in there, yep. let's see what's going on. Um, I have, I'm very lucky in that I'm with Sport Estate. They're my publisher, who are they're an imprint of Hub Collins. And my editor, Anna Kelly, has, is, um, has always championed uh, uh, Bain Publishing. So she started mm. the prize with the Guardian about um, to, to promote um, unrepresented voices. So she, I don't feel, whilst I do think there's a, a huge, there's huge room for improvement. And I've joined the Black Writers Guild. I'm not sure which mm-hmm. one you've heard about, but it, yeah. they're Bernard and Aristo, and those joined the team, a number of, um, number of key authors, quite a few of us have joined this guild, just to speak to publishing and say, okay, we need greater representation, because it is an issue. Um, within my own publisher, I actually think that personally I've looked at it very well and they have they haven't what I want to do and and um I've had free brain to write what I want to write. But that is not the case across the board. I know that for a fact I've talked to other authors yeah. and they've had some very difficult experiences. So I'm very much for, you know, championing other people getting their voice out there in the way they want to express themselves and uh, you know, change things to happen certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, I wanted to ask you about your column tomorrow because mm. it's, <laughs> it's such a good one. <laughs> you were on Deal or No Deal. I was, I know. And I, I, it makes me laugh even now thinking about it. It's, it's just the craziest thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've seen this column and that's how um, <laughs> how I got my first house. And it's, that's again a bizarre story, but I have these bizarre but very much true stories. <laughs> so yes, that that's my story of how I I won my first flat and I couldn't afford a mortgage. And I, I Googled, you know, win TV cash. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what happened. I ended up on this game show that hadn't not yet aired. 
And, uh, uh, you know, uh, within a few days, I was staring into no lesbian's eyes between our deal or no deal. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll never forget it. What was it like? Because it was obviously, you, as you said, you were on it before it even aired. So it was before uh, the kind of madness when everyone was obsessed with it and all strategizing. Yeah. Were, you, were you on it thinking, this is the most bizarre show. I don't know if anyone's going to watch it. Oh, I, I was because you know we had this because it hadn't started. But I was the first, I was the fourth ever contestant, yeah. and it hadn't aired, so we hadn't seen it. We didn't even see the set. We were the first people to ever see the set, and we so we practicing this like with warehouse or air, aircraft hangar almost. And um, and when we went on to it, and we didn't even know who the the, the presenter would be. Um, so no one came on it. He was absolutely brilliant. But I thought no one's going to watch this. It's completely crazy. I'm just opening boxes. Who's going to watch this? Story? And then now, and I've watched it since after I won my money. I've seen people have these incredible, crazy schemes of you know how to predict what they're going to win and all these, these superstitious ways of um, working out and strategies. And it, it's fascinating. At the time, we didn't know. We just opened boxes and hoped for the best. <laughs> and luckily for me, it worked. <laughs> It's a fabulous story, and I'm absolutely loving your columns. So thank you so much for writing it, Rachel. Thank you you so much. Thanks for chatting to us tonight. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's Rachel Edwards there, author and columnist in the Sunday Times. Uh, I mean, you just can tell from that that she's going to be a font of brilliant stories. So I'm going to be looking out for her every week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. I'm going to spend a week inside Tachumbul prison. I'm quite nervous about going in there because it's the most dangerous place in this country. What is your advice? 35 prison guards to 4,000 prisoners. I've never seen anything like it in any prison anywhere in the world. What are you looking for? Comida para vender. Oh, that's food? Just wouldn't associate what I'm seeing right now with such a beautiful island. You have armed officers yes. in the watchtowers, yes. and they have permission to shoot if somebody tries yes. to escape. Yes. 
they have permission to shoot if somebody tries to escape. We might try that here on Badass Women's Hour. Excel here on Talk Radio. Uh, I'm Harriet Minter and I am talking about the world's toughest prisons. You heard a little clip from the Netflix show there and we're joined now by the reporter behind it, Raphael Rowe. Hi, Raphael. Hi, Harriet. And remind me not to switch off before you tell me to so you don't shoot. (laughs) I'm scared already. Please, I'm going to be a pussycat compared to what you've been doing. Um, Tell us, first of all, where did the idea to go into the world's toughest prisons come from? Well, it was it was conceived by a production company here in the UK called Emporium Productions, who are under the Hattrick stable, who make lots of television programmes. And originally, they made the, the show for Channel 5 um, with a different presenter um, who did a fantastic job. And then... Um, Netflix were building up their their bank of programs and they came in and took the series, um, but they wanted to change the reporter. And it just so happened that I was in conversation with Emporium about another idea at the time that we then started talking about using my experience and knowledge of prison on working on this series. And so that's how I got involved, you know, and then it was, you know, taking a taste of text to Netflix and sort of said, we want this guy on the show and, and it all moved forward from there, really. And for anyone to know, what is your experience of prison? Well, I'm a man who spent 12 years in prison of a life sentence for a murder and a series of robberies that I didn't commit. Um, As a 20-year-old, I was convicted here in the UK. I was sentenced to life imprisonment, and I spent the next 12 years in in a single cell, you know, trying to architect a campaign to prove that I didn't commit the crimes. 12 years later, uh, with the help of my family, friends, campaigners, the media, my convictions were overturned by the Court of Appeal. I was released and I've led a successful career as a journalist ever since. I mean, that in itself is an amazing starting point for going into these prisons around the world and being able to connect with the people in there. But did you feel when they kind of talked to you about it, were you like, oh, hang on, I've, I've done prison. I'm not sure I want to go back. It, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, it wouldn't be for anybody. I mean, I, I, it's different if you're guilty, you've served the sentence, maybe you've got something different to offer. But for me, it, it was a you know a torturous time. It, it changed me as a person, my character. It interfered with my relationships in life, my, my, my growing up with my family, et cetera, et cetera. You know, from 20 to 32, I was yeah. in prison for a crime I didn't commit. So it was a tough decision, but, but there is a bigger picture here. Um, And it's about showing people what prison is really like. I suppose that's what I'm trying to do in this film. It's about changing people's perceptions, even my own. I learned so much going into these different prisons in different countries because they do it differently. I mean, there's only two things that are the same. One is containment, holding people behind closed walls. uh, And second, it's a form of punishment. Um, And uh, most people are in there for crimes they did commit. Not everyone, but, but most people are. And they're the only similarities. For you, in those 12 years, you must have really learnt some, I guess, incredible coping skills for dealing with scary, difficult, confrontational situations. How did those skills help making this show? Well, I, I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I looked into the eyes and the face of men that have done horrible things over and over again. That's when I was in prison and now I do it for, for a living. Um, I suppose the skill set he gave me was to know when somebody is genuinely threatening me or, or poses a threat um, or whether they're just doing the big 
I am kind of attitude um, and to pick up on people's instincts, their aura uh, with men. And you've got to remember mine is a learned experience mm. having been confined in that space with men where, where violence was, was prevalent all, all of mm. the time. And I've used those skills and my communication with people who have been violent to diffuse, you know, to protect myself or to defend yeah. myself. And so I've taken those skills into these prisons around the world. And so I'd like to think that sometimes, that, that, you know, I have an advantage. Not every prisoner I speak to in these prisons knows that I've been in prison initially. I mean, that yeah. sometimes comes out during the course of the conversation. So so sometimes it, it is used to my advantage. But, but, but most importantly, I think I know the... The aura of many men who have done many things which protect me in these environments. When you were in prison, did you think that the British prison system was I don't know, particularly a particularly tough one? If you'd been, if somebody had said, you know, name some of the toughest prisons on earth, would you have put the British prison system up there? When I was in prison, prison was tough. I mean, I was held in a prison within a prison. I'm talking wow. about about 20 years old. You know, I wasn't just in any kind of prison. I was inside a prison, and then within a prison, they had another prison built, and that was in Brixton in London, and I spent 18 months there. Yeah. I was also a high-category prisoner, so I was held in single cells in high-maximum security prisons all over the country. And I will challenge anyone, Harriet, here mm. or anywhere around the world, who thinks that one prison can be tougher than another for the individual who's yeah. being contained in there. Because I, I, I personally think prison is tough for various different reasons. E even the most rehabilitative prisons that have the most progressive systems and, and the luxuries, if you like, of PlayStations or TVs in their cells. I mean, the difference yeah. really does come down to culture, um, resources and infrastructure. And, and in this series, um, Takambu is probably the worst of the worst I've ever seen. You know, men sleeping outside under cardboard like homeless individuals on, on the street. Um, it, it, it was just shocking, openly using drugs, carrying knives. You know, they kill each other at least once every two weeks. I mean, it was a frightening place. But, but more than that, it, it was... It was seeing the social breakdown of, of, of such a place that, that really bothers me. And so where is Takambu? Takambu is in Paraguay, Asuncion. Mm. It's the capital of Paraguay, a small Latin South American country. And I've been to a few prisons around South America, Colombia, Brazil. And they do have brutal regimes, prisons run by prisoners. I mean, in this particular yeah. place, 35 prison guards to 4,000 prisoners. I mean, that says it, says it wow. all. I mean, I'm just, I, I had a moment of complete shock there when you said 35 prison guards to 4,000 prisoners. How on earth has that situation occurred? How, is, how has the government thought this is going to work? I think they just give up. I think mm. they, they you, you know, they have this hard line outside of prison that we're going to clamp down on drug traffickers. And, and what happens is yeah. it's not the big guys, as, as this has happened anywhere in the world. It's not the big drug traffickers uh, and the ones that make the lots of money. It's the small guys on the street that get picked up and get locked up for having possession or for using. And that's what I found in here. I, I think, you know, a third of the prison population in Takambu were, were drug users. You know, they didn't need to be locked up sleeping under cardboard in an open sort of space and on the outside nothing covering them they need help therapy but 
but it's a country that um, often throws these kinds of individuals, as well as your hardened criminals, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were murderers in there, cartel drug trafficking bosses. There were rapists. There were all types of offenders, very violent offenders. I mean, the knives they were showing me was, was terrifying. Um, but I think the government gives up, and it doesn't have the resources. But the director mm -hmm. in this particular prison did say to me, you know, what well, the best thing that could happen to this place would be to erase it to the ground, and, you know, rub it out, that's basically, and start again. That would be the best thing for that place. And, and I believe he's, he's, he's right. When you go into somewhere like that, presumably it is on those ratios, it must be a prison that is run by the prisoners and they are setting the rules and almost in a way in sort of keeping the structure. How do you start, how do you even know where to start when it comes to who you're going to interview, what the stories are you're going to tell? Um, it's, it's kind of worked out a little bit beforehand, but mostly once they're in the prison. So I have a team um, who work extremely hard to get us into the prison. Once we've got the permission, um, you know, my director or producer, um, generally one or two people will go into the prison, they will talk to the director about what it is we want to do and how and why we're doing what we're doing, and then they get shown around the prison sort of beforehand. I'm not with them at the time. And during that um, moment, they sort of take the opportunity to speak to individual prisoners. Now, in a place like Takambu and other prisons I've been to where the prisoners are in control, the guards often hand the director over to the, the, the sort of man in charge. And then mm -hmm. from there, he builds a little bit of a relationship. A week later, I'll turn up. When I get into the prison, I'm introduced to that boss. And then I try and negotiate with that person of where I can go, what I can do, and then I meet individuals. Um, and it goes from there. It's a lot of ad lib, really. Um, but it's all based on trust, you know, from the very moment I step through those gates, as well as sort of puffing out my chest and trying to be tougher and harder and as yeah. fearless as sometimes I appear. I try and use the persona that helped me survive in the real prison during real time in this environment that I've got to be you know, draw withheld for, for seven days. Um, so it's about building trust with the boss of the prison, the guards, and the small, smaller type prisoners so that I can navigate um, with as least problems as, prob as possible. Do you ever feel scared? There have been occasions where, um, you, you, you know, I have genuinely um, feared for my safety. And in this particular season um, in, in um, Lesotho, um, I, I did encounter what was a really frightening um, moment where prisoners were threatening to, to rape me. In fact, they were telling me I had to choose one of my cellmates as my wife or become the wife of one of the cellmates because that's yeah. how they do it. That's how they, that's part of their coping mechanism. But the problem yeah. is before I got into that dormitory, the guard had already said to me, you're on your own. If anything yeah. happens, there's no one to protect you. And if anybody tries to rape you, there's no one to help you. And then yeah. I find out, you know, three quarters of that prison population are in for sexual offences, in particular rape. Most of them have HIV. So, you know, this is a bigger wow. and badder problem than just prisoners. So that, that was frightening. But again, in Paraguay, we got attacked. I had snooker balls thrown at me by a prisoner. Luckily, it hit the camera of the person filming me um, and didn't break his jaw or do even more serious damage. So we do face real present threats when we're, when we're filming this and we do as much as we can to, to protect ourselves. We've talked about some of the dangers and the, I guess, the scarier sides of doing mm. this job that you're doing. 
But I also want to talk to you about some of the human stories that you've come across because there must be people that you meet in there that you find some form of connection with or whose stories really stick with you. Yeah, there is actually. I mean, I, I try not to judge anybody. I mean, I've sat down with serial killers, men that have killed their own children, you know, yeah. multiple rapists who commit murder and some of the, the wickedest of crimes. But I've also came across, you know, individuals who just come from, you know, poor social backgrounds or they may be uneducated or they may have to feed to provide for themselves or their families. And their stories are always re really sad um i don't compare them with myself or with anyone else i take yeah. them as an individual and i try and listen to their their story about um why and, and and i always appreciate how candid they can be sharing with me and i think that's for one reason you know beyond the trust and that's because very rarely do they get asked the simple questions that i'm asking them like why why did you do what you did and mm. how do you feel about what you did and 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 these guys are not often asked that question or may never been asked that question before in in their life you know simply you know, do they miss their wife their, their, their mother what does their family think about it so on that level I, I do have a connection because i have a mother i have sisters who suffered um hellishly when i was in prison and i could never feel their pain and so, you know, part of my tactic to try and get these guys to realise that prison is the wrong place, especially those that are favourable, if you like, those that can change their mindset, leave prison and maybe never go back. I try to make them think about the consequences, not just of the victims, if it's a victim's crime, um, but also their family and relatives who, who have been supporting them and doing what little they can. So I have a connection with them on that, on that level for sure. Have you come across anyone in your interviews that you think actually might have been wrongly convicted? Well, I mean, I don't have enough time, if I'm mm. honest, to sort of look into their cases. But without a shadow of a doubt, in Belize, I met numerous guys who were protesting that they were wrongfully imprisoned. And, you know, I like to think that um, I, I, I have an instinct for some guys, and there was mm. genuinely some guys who I believe shouldn't be. I could just see the pain in their face and and in their voice, that they weren't just trying to pull the wool over my eyes, especially when they knew that I myself had spent many years in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I could feel that connection. I could feel there was something there. And, and there is, without doubt, somebody in every prison I've been in up to date who has come to me and sort of said, I shouldn't be here, I've been wrongly convicted. I mean, it's one thing to complain that they shouldn't have been convicted of murder or the offence that they were convicted of, but maybe a lesser yeah. offence. But there has been at least one or two individuals and many in other places who have approached me and said, I'm innocent, I shouldn't be here, please help me. One of the tropes that we often see when we uh, in prison dramas or um, in novels about prison is the idea of the corrupt guard. Do you think that the guards you meet are generally... How, I guess, how good do you think they are? Part of the format of the show is that I spend a day with the guards, so so it, it's a privilege actually to see the other side and, and, and talk to them about mm. the challenges they face, you know, and the fact that at the end of the day they've got to go into their family and after they've seen someone murdered or something 
violent or even something good, how do they cope with that? Um, I think it varies in different locations. You know, when I was in Norway and Germany, the guards there are paid so well. They're provided with the right resources. Um, you know, they have the protection of the, the system, if you like. They have much more control over the prisons. That difference in places like Brazil or, or, or Paraguay or Lesotho, where the guards, you know, they're in with the prisoners. You know, they, they mix and mingle with the guys. That sometimes you don't know who is the prisoner and who is the guard. And, yeah, there is a a lot of corruption and the guards are the first ones to admit that you you know that um you know sometimes the only way they can survive or the only way prisoners can survive is to have this corrupt relationship in paraguay guards were charging prisoners to sleep on the floor so um and and in other places they were bringing in drugs for prisoners um and and i think this goes over and above that you know sort of one-off corrupt prison officer who gets caught and then suspended or expelled from the prison service. I think the lack of, of security in some of these places um, allows guards to bring in a lot more than, than they should. And, and, and there's an argument to sort of say whether that's right or wrong. You know, sometimes it might be something as simple as food, bringing in an extra bit of food to give to a prisoner. Now, that would be considered corrupt. But when you're looking at some of these guys who have absolutely nothing, would you you know, grudge a guard who's doing something as generous as bringing in an apple for a prisoner, mm. I would. How has it changed your view of the prison system doing this show? I think it's, um, it, it's made me more determined to change people's perceptions, I think. And I think the audience's reaction, the direct reaction that I get from the audience, I'm, I'm achieving that. People are, are messaging me um, and saying to me that, you know, they were hardline lock them up throw away the key but having seen what they've seen they've changed their mind and more should be done um i think you know i i i I don't want to compare different prisons in different countries because as i've highlighted on many occasions you know the resources and the infrastructure and the types of crimes and the culture and the social deprivation that some of these prisoners come from are the bigger challenges you know it's bigger than just comparing prisons to say one's tougher than another or one does it right or one does it wrong um, i think prison is just a, a, a cog in the criminal justice systems all around the world and many of them can be improved and i think that's what what i've learned that many of these criminal justice systems it doesn't always take finances sometimes it's just the sharing of knowledge what are some of the things that perhaps you would like to see changed about the UK's criminal system? Well, the first thing is, is honesty. I'd like the, the British government and the British Ministry of Justice and all those that work within our criminal justice system is just to be honest. I mean, they try to, I think, sometimes, but not all the time. They pull the wool over the public's eyes. I think just being honest about what really goes on and paint the true picture of what prisons are like. I think we in, in this country have the perception that, that prisons are these wild, violent, spice-taking places. Well, prisons different, uh, differ across the country. You know, you have many local prisons where they do have these revolving door challenges. But the, the majority of long-term prisoners are in completely different type environments. And what goes on in there is very different from what we see on, on our televisions when we have these short, sharp, hit-type programs where we sort of say, that's crazy, that's mad. 
Um, so I think being honest is the first thing about what prisons are really like. But to do that, they've got to give people access. And at the moment, I think we, we over-control the access that we give the media to show the public what their taxpayer money is paying for, you know. And, and they're terrified of people seeing something like a PlayStation in a prisoner's cell because then they think, you know, the media will go berserk and the public will go crazy because why should a prisoner have that? Well, I think we just need to explain why a prisoner has that. And sometimes it's because they're banged up behind their door for 23 hours so it's to keep them sane Um, it's also to create a a, a sort of different atmosphere Um, so I think being honest um, and and sharing knowledge and experience with other prisons that do it much better than we do. Do you think as a country the UK needs to think about how it treats people who have been prisoners who have come out and who are looking for jobs looking to change their life looking to do things differently Do you think we can start to think about how we change our attitudes? I I think the thing is, is I think there's so many charities, organisations out there already doing this, but it's just not joined up. It just frightens me to think how many different organisations are doing exactly the same job. And so it it, it bothers me that it's more of a money ka-ching kind of Mm. attitude rather than it is getting because it's not hard I mean really think about it we have a population of 60 million we have a prison population of 80,000 the government are talking about building three new maximum prisons you know you know these Mm. thousand intake prisons I mean who who are they going to put in these prisons Mm. that suggests to me that they're going to be going out there and taking people off the street to lock them up and criminalizing people women in particular who don't need to be criminalized so I think the issue is 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 much bigger i think there are some success stories out there there are a lot of dedicated people out there trying to do the right thing i think where they get it wrong both the government these organizations is they try to rehabilitate the individual they need to get into the mindset and make that person believe that they can be somebody else once they do that they've made a change less victims less crime that's fascinating um finally rafael is there anywhere that you haven't been yet on world's toughest prisons that you would like to go and look at where else do you think the show should go wow the world is a big place <laughs> i mean yeah I, i'd like to keep comparing you know i'm i'm half caribbean my, my dad's from jamaica i'd love to go and see uh, inside a prison in, in jamaica to see how they do i'd love to go to australia and see what it's like down the other side of the world in india i haven't been into to india so i've almost touched every continent um, but i think you know um yeah, those are the places I'd like to go. But you know what? Sometimes it, it, it's in your own backyard. And I would love for the British government to say, come in, spend seven days in our prisons, even though I spent 12 years trying to get out. <laughs> I'd still go back because um, I think I could show the real side of, of what goes on. I think you could too. Rafael, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us. It's absolutely fascinating listening to you. And just a really interesting insight there i think into a prison society around the world but also how we see the prison population how we see people who have been in prison and how we can start to address those own attitudes within ourselves this is the badass women's hour podcast you can get in touch on all the socials on at badass women's hour we are talking all things badass women on this show and our next guest is I think pretty much the definition of one. She's written her first novel at the age of 78 and it's inspired by her work as a consultant psychiatrist. Brenda Davies joins us to talk about it now. Hi, Brenda. 
Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Uh, your first novel is The Girl Behind the Gates, and mm-hmm. it tells the story of a girl who, at the age of 17, finds herself pregnant but unmarried in 1939 mm-hmm. and ends up being sectioned. How did you find... Uh, where did the inspiration come from for this story? Um, well, it's a true story. Wow. I lived part of it. Um yeah, it's a true story, although, of course, I've changed names and dates and places in order to protect people's anonymity. But um, pretty well everything about it is true. Part of it taken from Nora's notes and things, and the rest of it, yeah, I lived through. You say you lived through. Tell us about that. Um, well, I was, I was a, a young consultant psychiatrist in this hospital and came across Nora in my work on the back wards and like so many of my patients she was such an inspiration and i'm often saying to to people you know their stories are so amazing and really they should write their stories so i i said to nora several times you really need to write your story and she said no 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 i can't but maybe you'd write it for me and i said no no that's not what i'm doing and i refused many times and then she was very very clever and sweetly manipulative (laughs) in that she died in 1995 and she left a letter saying, Brenda, don't forget you promised to write my story. Mm. So I sat on it for quite a long time and then I thought, since I am indeed 79 actually in 10 days' time, um, I needed to get on with it now. So about three years ago I decided, okay, this is the time if I'm going to do it. And it's been an absolute joy to write her story and remember her. And I'm sure that she's thrilled too. She wanted her story to be told, particularly so that it might also bear witness to the other women who were in similar positions. Because actually at the time, that time, there was still about 2,700 women in psychiatric hospitals up and down the length of England who um, had been um, incarcerated because they were unmarried mothers They were incarcerated under the Mental Deficiency Act, which covered people like um, sex workers, we would call them now, prostitutes they were called then, um, people with alcohol problems, sometimes people with learning disabilities and unmarried mothers. And so that was the category she came into. And at that time, there would, of course, be a choice because she also also tried to kill herself at that time. Mm. And there would have been a choice between... um, prison because she had now two criminal offences or psychiatric hospital and her parents said psychiatric hospital but of course her sentence if you like Mm. was open-ended and she was there for many many years how old was she when you met her she was um just turning 60 or thereabouts um and she'd been there since she was 17 so, um, yeah, it was dreadful. She was 66 when she eventually got free. I mean, I can't almost believe that. How How did, at no point in those 50 years, somebody say, hang on, we need to look at this? Well, the thing is, it, <laughs> they didn't have any of the facilities that we have now. Mm. Even in the 1980s, 1980s, there weren't all of the facilities mm. um, that we had now. And so everybody was treated as 
and naughty children, particularly these women. They were just bad girls yeah. and and treated as such. And nobody, you know, this, the um, diagnosis she had was moral defective. Mm. A terrible, terrible term. Yeah. Nobody looked at what was really going on with this young girl. But in fact, when she was admitted to hospital, there was nothing going on with her. Sure, she was pregnant and she was frightened, but apart from that, she was not mentally ill. It was being there for so long and suffering the treatment that she suffered that yeah. most of the patients suffered, actually, during, in, during that time, um, that actually produced complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which was eventually what, what was diagnosed. Um, and so she, you know, she'd suffered depression quite a lot just by being there, and the, the things that she suffered and the degradation and humiliation there was in those days. And, um, yeah, and she was catatonic from time to time. Mm. But I want the story to be seen as it really truly is, one of certainly um, women's rights, mm. mental health, but also about the amazing power and resilience, uh, resilience of the human spirit because that was really um, what she stands for. And what I think is incredible is you say she was finally released at age 66. Mm. And she went on to have a happy life? Is that? She did. <clears throat> she did. She did extremely well. I don't want to spoil the book too much. <laughs> um, but, she, yeah, she did extremely well. Uh, she worked very hard and she re regained some pride in herself. But of course, I would imagine that right until the end of her life, she probably still suffered flashbacks occasionally yeah. and still had nightmares occasionally. But um, in terms of her life as it had been, um, it, she was much, much better and, and she found joy again in life. Mm. Um, but her life that could have been yeah. Well, that's a different matter. Do you think this is obviously, you know, we're talking about something that happened in 1939 and here we are in 2020. Yeah. But do you still think in 2020 that there is a gendered aspect to how we talk about mental health? I'm thinking of you know, things like we now talk about postnatal depression quite openly, but that still feels like a relatively recent thing for me. You know, yeah. Are we still inclined to maybe not put the same kind of moral defective label on women and their behavior, but still judge women differently when it comes to mental health? Um, I think probably, I was going to say possibly, but probably we do. I don't want in any way, though, to demonize psychiatry. I think that psychiatry well practiced is a beautiful art. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, we can, if we have time, and of course time is often of the essence of working in the NHS particularly. But if we can have time to really listen to people's story, for me, it's all about story. I love people's stories. And I, I feel that, you know, we are a sum total of everything that ever happened to us. And if we have time to go back and find the story, listen to the story, see why one thing happened after another after another, and how this person got to here, then often just in the telling of their story, there's an enormous amount of healing that can happen. And, of course, nowadays we also have psychotropic medication, which is 
far, far different to anything there was. When at the time that Nora was admitted, there would be things like phenobarbitone, well, other barbiturates, and 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 not a lot else really. Mm. Um, so straitjackets and such were the way that people were controlled because it was all about custodial care mm. and control of people who were often apparently uncontrollable. Mm. And of course, people who are psychotic, then they would be. uncontrollable and you know would be tortured by their hallucinations and things whereas now we do have medication that helps with that Mm. but I still think we need to look at people's story so I'm a great believer in psychotherapy and and also healing to help people really really find out who they are and and work to become better versions of themselves and also to work to forgive yeah. I think so much of the mm. the things that people are left with, the trauma that they still carry, we can we can deal with a lot of that by teaching people. Brenda, thank you so much. There's an incredible story there, and she tells it brilliantly. The book is The Girl Behind the Gates. Go buy it now. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.